0: okay there we go uh there is a fairly common scenario that unfolds in our house and it goes something like this Uh, my kids they need to get ready for school every morning Uh, and and truthfully i i really do pity them because when i had a kid uh, when i was a kid uh, i i had all kinds of uh, things to to put in my backpack but it's nothing like uh the backpack that my kids carry around these days I, i don't understand it uh we live in the digital age they have things online right but yet they're they're weighted down by these enormous backpacks uh it it, like i liken it more to an infantry soldiers pack because there's just so much that's weighted down there i I worry that one day they will they will tip over uh because again it, it is just so enormous why are they hauling these things around now more and more uh, it seems like they're required to remember to, to bring things uh, with them, things that I, I didn't have to, to bring when I was a kid, uh, a laptop. It's, it's amazing that they have laptops and the school provides them these, uh, these, these uh, Chromebooks. Uh, but not only have to remember it, they have to remember to charge it the night before too. Otherwise, they, they're carrying around a brick with them all day long, right? Same thing with the water bottles. When I was a kid, uh, I drank from a water fountain, and uh, if you got the flu, that's okay. You know, it's it, we we all shared in the germs and everything. Well, now I don't know if this is a post COVID thing or just in general. You know, uh, we're just becoming some harder people. We're, we're all we're giving them water bottles to, to take with them and carry around with them all day long at school. And so that, but that's still one more thing that they have to remember. And my wife always tells the boys, remember to fill and chill your water because you know we don't want them to go to school with lukewarm water. <laughs> we're not monsters, you know and so they they have to do that and so most of the time it's it's not uncommon for you know it's uh, they have to be in the car ready to go by 7 15 a.m and one of the kids inevitably is running around dad where's my water bottle i i don't use the water bottle i've never touched the water bottle you were the last one to use the water bottle so you must know where the water bottle is and they even get perturbed at me for not knowing because generally speaking i am the one that knows all things I am the source of all information, Dad. You know, uh, where do babies come from? Yes, I got that one uh, many years ago. But again, they, they, they come to me. They come to their mother too, but they expect both Dad and Mom to know all these things. And I don't know is not an acceptable answer. So even for something as uh, innocuous or mundane as where's my, mo- wa- my water bottle, they expect us to know, okay? Uh, and it bothers them greatly whenever we say we don't know. Um, But again, they're always met with much disappointment. It seems like whenever we tell our kids, I don't know. Now, let me tell you where I'm going with this. Last, uh, we're in a study right now called The Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. And when I was here last, which seems like more than a month ago, probably because it was more than a month ago, the last thing I went over with you was a lesson I entitled, Who is Jesus? Part One. And, uh, I would have never started that lesson had I known I was going to be gone for longer than a month. So here we are in part two. But uh, this lesson is being recorded, by the way, as is all the other ones. So you can always go back and listen to, to part one if you need to. So uh, in part, what I talked about in part one was the fact that not only is Jesus our Savior, the one who saved us from sin and death, but he's also our Lord. And when we say that he is our Lord, we're saying that he is very God of very God, God incarnate. This is the one thing that I do love about Christmas season in the church, is that we get to focus on uh, really reminding ourselves, not about just that it's the birth of Jesus. You know, every religion in the world uh, has a figure that had a birthday. So it's not just that we're celebrating the fact that it's Jesus's birthday, but the fact that he's God incarnate. Uh, that and just being able to unpack that during the, the Christmas season is, uh, is something i love to do. And, and uh, I'll get a chance to do that this year uh, on Christmas Day. So because, as I mentioned before, I'm preaching here on Christmas Day. I hope to see every one of you here. I don't care how young your kids are. <laughs> Anyway, so anyway, last time we spoke about uh, something of the deity of Christ. And this time we're going to speak a little bit about the humanity of Christ. We believe that, that we always say that uh, if you stay around these Presbyterian circles too long, and generally Christian circles, everyone who acknowledges or believes in, or proclaims that they're a Christian would acknowledge this, that, that we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So we focused a little bit about the, the fully God part last night, or last, uh, last time, and uh, this time we're going to talk a little bit more about the fully man. So there's uh, uh, one instance in Scripture where we see the humanity of Christ clearly on display that, that tends to bother us a bit. And uh, you can find it in Mark 13, verse 32, and it says this. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In other words, here's an instance where Jesus is saying what? I don't know. know. And suddenly I feel like I can relate with my kids when Jesus says, I don't know. What? You're, You're Jesus. How can you say, I don't know about anything okay now if jesus is fully god and and uh you know we've just talked about that fully god fully man If he's fully god and god knows everything how can jesus ever say i don't know who would like to try and answer that one for us i'm gonna open up the floor here how can jesus say i don't know does that bother anyone a little bit yeah seems like it should right Sometimes as we read through scripture and read about Jesus, it's easy for us to make distinctions between the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. For example, when we see Jesus perspiring in the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, is that a manifestation of the humanity of Christ or the divinity of Christ? When we see him sweating, is that humanity or divinity? Not a trick question. Humanity, Certainly humanity. Uh, and let me tell you, I love talking about this. This is fascinating to me. And if you've ever read a book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God, you'll know where I'm getting most of this today. I recommend that for your, your reading if you've never uh, read it. But, but listen, I'm practically going to dictate a good portion of that book to you today. But when Jesus perspires, when Jesus perspires, that's a manifestation of his humanity. <laughs> good friends in the back. Good to see you all here. Uh, it may shock you to learn this, but God doesn't sweat. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't cry. God doesn't bleed. God doesn't die. The divine nature didn't die on the cross. If the divine nature died on the cross, what would happen? As R.C. Sproul would say, the universe would cease to exist, he says in his, in his uh, big uh, um, uh, loud voice that he, that he had God rest his soul. So we see so many things in the pages of Scripture that display the humanity or humanness of Jesus. So when he says, this is something I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, that is a display of the humanity of Christ. Okay, now if that's the case, then we have to ask the question, right? What's the next question? Okay, if that's God incarnate and God knows everything and there's a perfect union between them, how could it be that there's something that Jesus doesn't know? Do you see what that's saying though? That's like saying if there's a perfect unity between the divine and the human nature, how could the human nature ever get hungry? God never gets hungry. Alright? You see, the point that we have to make here is, is is what Scripture affirms is that it's absolutely important. It's absolutely important to distinguish between the divine nature and the human nature. But we don't want to confuse them or or blend them together in such a way as to obscure the reality of either the divine or the human nature so when we talk about his divine nature as human nature we have to make sure we, we we distinguish them but not separate them they don't work independently of each other they work in harmony with one another to achieve their divine purpose you see The human mind of Christ was always in unity with the divine mind. Sometimes we we, we see Jesus displaying supernatural knowledge in Scripture, where he reveals things that uh, any mere mortal wouldn't know. For example, when he identifies Judas as his betrayer. He didn't didn't arrive at that conclusion because he's a good uh, detective. You know, He, uh, he, he arrived at that conclusion... Because he receives that information from the one who is omniscient. But you see, it's one thing for the divine nature to communicate something to the human nature. It would be another thing entirely if, if the divine nature would, would swallow up the human nature and, and, uh, and deify the mind of Christ. The human mind of Christ, it seems, had access to the divine mind, but, the, but they were not the same. Okay? See that they worked in harmony to achieve God's purpose. Does that make sense? I know that's really, in a sense, confusing because we don't have reference for anything like that on earth. We can't say, oh, it's just like that. All right. Make sense so far? So far, so good? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, so there are certain things that, uh, that Jesus did not know by his own testimony. Again, sometimes that's more than we can wrap our minds around. There's still this, this shroud of uh, the shrouded in mystery. We don't have any reference for that in, in all of history. Jesus is in a class by himself. But the most important thing i want you to understand is that when we talk about christ being fully god and fully man we can distinguish the divine from the human but we don't want to divide them in other words we might want to avoid saying things like that's jesus's human side Uh, if you said that to me i'd know what you mean i know what you mean but that can imply that he has two sides to him you know the human and the divine but no the reality is that he's fully both he's fully both now why am i splitting hairs about that why is it so important to acknowledge that jesus is fully man why why does jesus have to be fully man why does jesus have to be fully man anyone have a guess for that why is it to be, be fully man to understand for him to to be an, uh, uh, an example for us okay of what it is like, to, be, to know who Okay, so to, to be an example for us, but also sounds like you're describing so that uh, he could um, live with, represent us. There you go. Okay, that's the one I was gonna try and fish for. Represent us, okay? He has to be fully man to be able to fully represent. If he's not fully man, then he can't represent you. If he's not fully man, then he can't live with, with reference to you. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay? You see, if, if, uh, if you or I uh, have any chance of standing before God in hopes that he accepts us, we, we really have two options. We could either, as, as human men and women, live perfect lives without any sin, good luck on that, or... We could have the sinless and righteousness of a real man, of a real man who lived on our behalf, have that record applied to us. So really, that's our only hope. That's, that's uh, that a representative who could live with reference to us would be an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. That's why Jesus had to be a man, not like a man. He had to be a real man who lived as a real man would live yet without sin. Jesus had to be a man so that he could identify with us. That was the other word I was was trying to fish for. He could identify with us, suffering in our place, and sympathizing with us in our weaknesses. All right? Now, having said that, why do we say that Jesus had to be fully God? Fully man, fully God. Why? We just talked about why he had to be fully man. To represent us, to, to identify with us, to even serve as an example for us. What about, why does he have to be fully God? Why is it essential that he's fully God. That's a tough one, right? Anyone have a guess? A thought? Why does he have to be fully God? So he, could live sin. so he could live without sin. That's really important. Okay? He had to be fully God. It necessarily had to be fully God. This, this is a little more difficult to grasp, so I don't want to lose you. Stay with me. I, I'm going I'm to read for you how the Heidelberg Catechism... Uh, answers this question, okay? Why must Jesus also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us a righteousness and life. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, okay? What's he saying? Have you ever wondered why the punishment for rejecting Christ is an eternal punishment, okay? It's, you know, we we talk about the reality of hell, that that's an eternal consequence, eternal. And if Christ represented us and bore our sin, if he took on our sin, why wasn't he punished eternally? Have you ever wondered that? That's a good thing to wonder. Jesus dying on the cross was a means of satisfying the wrath of God, Okay. Sin entered the world, and that sin was an infraction against a God who is infinitely holy. He's not just better than we are. If you say, you know, my dad is a good person. Yes, he might be a good person, but God is not just better. He's infinitely better. So a sin committed against an infinitely righteous God has infinite implications. Okay? You with me so far? A sin against an infinite God has infinite implications. So, so God's wrath against sin is, an, is infinite in quality. And in order to satisfy that infinite wrath, of what value would the sacrifice to atone for that wrath necessarily have to be? One of infinite value. Only Christ, only Christ fully God, could bring a sacrifice of infinite an eternal value to satisfy the wrath of God. Only Christ, by the power of his divinity, could bear the weight of God's wrath, okay? Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying there? It, it had, to be, had to be perfect. If a sin against a perfect God has an infinite consequence then you have to yield a, a sacrifice that is of equal weight and equal value in Christ in his perfection, that was the only way that we could satisfy that level of, of justice, okay? This is why we believe that salvation is God's work. This is why I believe salvation is God's work. You and I, we don't have the means to earn enough favor to satisfy that kind of wrath. Only the God-man could do that. In order for us to be saved, God would have to do that himself. Okay, does that make sense? I know that was a lot. That was a lot. I promise you that's probably about as uh, theologically dense as we're going to get today. But uh, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to leave you with that concept of it had to be Christ. It had to be a perfect sacrifice in order to to satisfy that that uh the sin against a, a an infinitely perfect righteous God okay all right, so we've talked a little bit about the humanity of christ uh, we've touched on the holiness of Christ, uh, which I want to talk about a little bit more Jesus Christ is holy he's holy uh if you if you've known me very long you would know that one of my all time favorite passages and things to, to talk about is, is Isaiah chapter six. I feel like I uh, have Josh and Carolyn back here who literally uh started this class how many years ago 99 99 years ago it was was in about 1999 so more than 20 years ago 23 24 years ago and uh and i've only been teaching this class for maybe i don't know 10 11 years but the number of times that i've taught on isaiah 6 I feel like it's once a year, <laughs> once a year at least. Uh, but I love talking about Isaiah chapter six. It's had a profound effect on me. Do you know which passage that is in Isaiah chapter six? That's where we get uh, the uh, holy, holy, holy uh, hymn based on uh, that, uh, that passage of scripture. The prophet Isaiah goes to the temple uh, perhaps to mourn the death of Israel king, Israel's king Uzziah. Uh, and while he was there, he saw in the midst of his mourning, he sees seated on the throne, not an earthly king, but he sees Adonai, the Lord God Almighty himself. And uh, if you ever want a time, time to, to look and see exactly who we're talking about there, it's Jesus. See, it's Jesus. And you, John 12, 41 gives you reference for that. As the Lord sat there in all of his splendor, the angels in heaven attended to him. In the midst of their ministry, they had to, they had to cover their faces because even they, the, even they, the angels of heaven, couldn't bear to look at the Lord in all of his holiness and glory without shielding themselves. Okay, why, why do they cover their faces? Because the Lord radiates holiness in such a manner that if you look directly at it, do you remember in Exodus chapter 33? I think it's Exodus 33, where, where, the, where, where uh, Moses asked, can I see your face? And what does the Lord say? <coughs> oh, no, you can't. You can't see. It'll kill you. It'll literally kill you. Or when, when Moses was up on the mountain uh, it, getting the commandments from God, and when he came back down on the mountain, his, his face literally glowed it glowed because he'd been in the presence of the Lord. And they, they said, cover your face, Moses. Oh my goodness, what's wrong with you? But, but back to Isaiah, even, even the angels, even the angels that, that, that minister to the Lord in heaven have the good sense to cover their faces in the presence of the Lord. And do you remember what Isaiah's response was when he saw the Lord? What was his immediate response? What was it? Woe is me. Okay, I I wish I could effectively give you a good translation for woe is me. It's not like, oh man, wow. (laughs) Woe is me is is equivalent of calling a curse down upon yourself. Woe is me, I am ruined, is what Isaiah says. Now again, and you've heard Scott talk about this some too, is that Isaiah, he's a prophet of God. He's a literal mouthpiece, serves as a mouthpiece of God. You would think a guy like that has pretty good credentials. Like, you know, he's kind of holy himself. But even when this holy man of God, right, is in the presence of holy, holy, holy Christ, what does he say? Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm ruined. Okay, when people like Isaiah caught a glimpse of the Lord's holiness, their immediate reaction is to do something like call a curse down upon themselves because they're not worthy of being in the presence of such infinite holiness. Now, it, begs qu- it here's the question. Jesus... Fully God, fully man. Is Jesus on that level of holy? Is he that holy? Is he that holy? Let me, answer, let me ask it another, another way. According to the New Testament, specifically in the 12th chapter of John, oh, I already covered this. This was Jesus. He saw, he saw Isaiah saw Jesus. He was in the presence of Jesus. So, so is Jesus holy? Isaiah says, oh, yes, he is. So if that's the case, why didn't people have the same reaction around Jesus when he walked on the earth? when they saw Jesus, why didn't they go, woe is me, whoa, get back? Or the first time Mary and Joseph saw baby Jesus, why didn't they, ah, get away? You think they did that? No, they didn't do that. Why? To answer that question, I want to take you to a specific account in Scripture. I love, I love this so much. Uh, so, so turn your, your Bibles, if you have them, or you can follow along with me up here year, to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. In the meantime, I'll give you some background. We, we read that the, we just talked about this. We have a Thursday morning men's gathering uh, that is going through the, the signs of the Savior, uh, small group study, which is always open. It's never closed. So if you're a man, <laughs> it's just a men's Bible study. We have a women's Bible study on Tuesday. We have a Thursday one, six thirty in the morning. Please join us if you wish. They also have biscuits and Bibles, which is David on Wednesday morning too. So a lot of good men's opportunities here, but uh, we were just talking about this on Thursday morning, and we read that the disciples had been out all night fishing, and they they come back and their their nets are empty. And Jesus approaches them and says to Peter something to the effect of uh, How did it go out there today? And I've never, haven't seen the chosen yet, which is uh, uh, you know uh, apparently, but uh, I, I do want to see it. Apparently, this is dramatized in a, in, in a really uh, uh, fantastic way. But uh, Jesus says, "How's it go today?" And Peter replies, "It was lousy. Didn't catch a thing." And, and Jesus tells him, "Well, Peter." Uh, why don't you take your nets and and put them on the other side of the boat? And wouldn't you love to see Peter's response at that point? You know, here's a rabbi. Here's Peter who's been a fisherman his whole life. And here comes a a rabbi. I can so identify with this too. Because again, as a man of the cloth myself, right? (laughs) You know, whenever I step into any conversation about anything, it'd be like if I went to to Danny over here and said, hey, Danny, let me tell you something about guitars. (laughs) Teach you something here, Danny would say. Okay, all right, right. And so we 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 read they've been out all night long, and uh, and Peter must be rolling his mind. But sure, let's let's do what the teacher says. And so they did. And you know what happened? Every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumped into the the nets, and to the point that they they feared that their nets were going to break and their boat would would sink. Now, if something like that happened to you, what would your response be? I mean, like. What in the world just happened? Did, get a load of this. Did you see what just happened? That was amazing. That was the, the greatest thing I've ever seen. My kids uh, have a video, uh, or a guy they watch on YouTube every once in a while. His name is uh, Mr. Beast. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And they were showing me this video. Apparently this guy literally has more money than he knows what to do with, and he likes giving stuff away. And he signed up. Uh, he signed himself up to be an Uber driver, okay? And he would he would get a call to go pick someone up, and they go pick him up. And, and then at the conclusion of the ride, at the, once the Uber ride was over, he would say, uh, uh, "Here you go. Here's here's the, the keys to the car. It's yours." You know, they they called him for a ride, and they were saying, "Here's your car. You get a free car." And they're like, "They're dumbfounded. They're dumbfounded at the fact that I called you for a ride, and now you're not only taking me to where I need to go, but you're giving me the car too." Yeah, enjoy. Every single one of them was happy, beyond grateful. Thank you. That's incredible. This is the best day of my life. Well, this is the greatest haul of fish that that Peter has ever seen in his entire life. What was his reaction? Seems seems like he'd react similarly, right? To getting a new car. Peter looked at Jesus and he says this. This is verse 8, chapter 5 of Luke, Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Woe is me. Depart from me. Get away from me. For I'm a sinful man. What did Isaiah say? Same thing. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I have unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Very similar. Why did it take a net full of fish for Peter to see it? It's because Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. It, it was the flesh that would veil Jesus' holiness. It was always there, always fully God and fully man. And on occasion, Jesus would pull back that veil, and through that crevice, a beam of of manifest deity would break through. And the reaction of Peter in this case, not different than Isaiah's Woe is me. I'm ruined. Depart from me. Go away. I'm not worthy. So, So, was Jesus holy? Absolutely, he was holy. When he, when he took on the flesh, he set aside or veiled his holiness in such a manner that prevented people like, like you and me from going blind and, and dying. But every once in a while, as he did with Peter, he, he would pull it back just a little bit. It's like the, the, the Christmas song, uh, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, Hail the Incarnate Deity. He pulls that veil back and manifest deity comes through. It's there, but he's veiled in the flesh. Any questions on that or thoughts on that, responses? That's pretty awesome, isn't it? And there's multiple instances all throughout Scripture. Another one I love is, is, is Jesus in the garden uh, when they come to, to, uh, to arrest him. And, uh, and they ask, you know, you know, who are you looking for? And uh, we're looking for Jesus, Nazareth. And he says, it is I, where he says, you know, I am. He uses the, the uh, egoimi, you know, the holy name of God in that. And in that moment, in that moment, it causes the, the guards who came to arrest him to literally fall back. He's blown away because, again, he pulls back that veil. It's there. The holiness of God is there. It was always there. uh, But he veiled it in flesh so that he could walk among us and live with reference to us and serve as our representative. So was Jesus holy? Absolutely he was. Uh, Let's talk about one more title with the time that we uh, have left. And that title is Christ. Christ, our, our substitute. Um, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word substitute, I, uh, I don't have a very positive feeling. For example, a substitute teacher. I don't know how many of you have to ever serve as substitute teachers, but may God bless you. May God keep you. Uh, because I, if I was, I, I don't know if it's still the same way, but when I was a kid, whenever we had a, a substitute teacher, we saw that teacher walk in and immediately there was this sensation of, we're not doing a thing today. We are we are not working a bit. Okay, you would walk in, and, and your 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 teacher was out, and man, this is this is the greatest day of uh, of school. Uh, what else? When I hear the word substitute, I also think about uh, cooking. When you have to use the word substitute in in cooking, for me, it's not generally a positive thing. Is is there a sugar substitute we can use? Pass. I don't know. Whatever it is. Pass, right? No, thank you. How about a flour substitute? Oh, there's some really good... No, no, I don't want to hear it. I'd uh, I'll Just take the good old flour. Would you substitute uh, meat for vegetables? I'd like you to kindly leave if you're substituting vegetables for meat, right? If you're substituting something in cooking, it usually isn't a means of making an improvement. For me, for me, okay? I know I'm showing bias here. Some of you may, may sharply and rightfully disagree, but, but what is a substitute? A substitute is something that stands in the place of something or someone else, okay? So by that understanding, what do we mean when we say that Jesus was our substitute? He stood in our place, right? Uh, And to further answer that question, I'm going to take you to one account in Matthew. And uh, this is an account of Jesus' baptism. Now, I would presume that many of you who have been baptized have a good idea as to why you were baptized. Here at Christ Prez... Uh, We are part of the Christ Presbyterian Church in America. We observe baptism as a sign of the new covenant. It's an extension of the old, where the old sign was circumcision. The new sign is baptism. Is that what Jesus was doing when he was being baptized? He was not. That's not what he was doing. Okay? Some of you may have grown up in another denomination where you observed a believer's baptism. It was a means of confessing your need for, for Christ and his ability to, to wash away your sins. It is, is that what Jesus was doing when he was baptized? Not quite. Okay. Let's have a look at this account and see if we can figure it out. This is Matthew. And this is another one. I just love this account so much. This is Matthew 3, verses 1 to 3. Ah, it's just so great. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's telling everyone, repent, you're sinners. Specifically, he's talking to the Jews here, saying, you people of God, you chosen people of God, repent. It's almost as if he's saying, you're, you're not the people of God anymore. You need to take a bath. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is who he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight, okay? So his message is one of repentance. Repent, you're sinners, okay? Not, not repent for the kingdom of God is coming soon or, or for the kingdom of God is eventually going to get here. Uh, like all the other prophets before him were saying, it, you know, this is not a someday, some, sometime soon, this is going to happen. The prophet is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's imminent, it's imminent. So he was telling these people, uh, in the river, telling them to repent. Specifically, he was telling again the people of God, Israel. You need to wash yourselves because the Messiah that you've been hearing about for hundreds of years—he's coming, and you're not ready. Again, it's like you're—you're you're not the chosen people of God that you think you are. Repent. Take a bath. You're not. It's almost like he's saying you're not Jewish anymore. And it's at this event where Jesus comes around, and John tells him, uh, you know, he tells John. I would like you to baptize me again remember who his audience he's saying these words to you you people are sinners (laughs) you people are not ready you need to take a bath and Jesus says sign me up okay verse 14 chapter 3 John would have prevented him saying I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me he was flabbergasted M- me, baptize you? If anything, you, you should be baptizing me. Put yourself, in John- put yourself in John's shoes. He knows a thing or two. Okay, this is the first prophet that's come along in-, in perhaps 400 years. He understands the Messiah must be the Lamb of God. He's probably put together a lot of that already in his, in his own head uh, by inspiration of the Lord. He, he was utterly familiar with the-, the Old Testament and he understood what the Passover Lamb symbolized. The Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world Like we were talking about a minute ago, he understood this has to be a spotless, sinless, perfect lamb. And here, Jesus is saying, I'll do the the thing that sinners should be doing. So John tells him, I can't do it. You should be baptizing me. And how does Jesus respond? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. Just do it, John. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then... He consented. Here's what he's telling him, basically. Look, John, I know you don't fully understand what's going on here. I know you don't want to baptize me, but John, let it be so now. He's telling him, basically, let it alone, John. Just do it. Obey me. Do what I tell you to do. And so he does, probably with with fear and trembling all the while. But he does it. And then we read in the remainder of the passage, verse 16 and following... And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened up. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So there's a hint. So why on earth did Jesus participate in this, if I could use the term, sinner's baptism, when he was not a sinner? Because he said, Let it be so now. He said this in verse 15. Did you catch it? It was in the one right before. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's your answer. That's it. But what in the world does that mean? Later on in Matthew, Jesus tells us this, and it gives us a hint as to what he's doing and asking, why he's asking John to baptize him. Matthew five eighteen. For truly I say to you, This is really key here. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what does that mean? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's he's telling us that that Jesus, saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to step into the role of the Jewish nation. The nation that has been called God's chosen people now is now embodied in Jesus. And Jesus becomes the sin bearer of the nation. He's identifying, he's identifying with the people of God, with, with you and me. He, he's stepping into our shoes. He's stepping into the Jordan River, right? And he's being our substitute. It should be you and me in there saying, I'm not worthy, I don't deserve this. And instead it's Jesus saying, I, I'm gonna live with reference to you. I'm, I'm gonna step into your shoes and everything that's required of you I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. He's going to be our substitute. He is our substitute. This is why Jesus has taken it upon himself to to fulfill every single requirement of the law. Every iota of the law he was taking on himself. Because you know why? Because you and I couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. The people of God couldn't do it. The Ten Commandments, none of it. And now God is requiring his people, as directed by the first prophet of God in 400 years, requiring them to partake in this baptism. Jesus would say, I'll do it on their behalf. And this is important. The redemption that's brought to us by Christ is is not restricted to his death on the cross. You know, it's not that Jesus says, okay, they've accumulated all this sin. I'll now take it on the cross and I'll pay for it there, okay? And you've heard me say this before, but Jesus had to die for our sins. Not only did he have to die for our sins, who who can fill in the rest of this one? I feel like I've said it a few times. He not only had to die for our sins, but he had to live. What? What? Live for our righteousness. I feel like so often we get this. We get that Jesus died for our sins. But again, if Jesus just died on the cross, that would pay for our sins. But would it make us righteous? Because that's what that's what God requires—not just sinlessness, but being sinless and righteous. You've heard uh, Micah six eight. He's shown you, O oh man, what is what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk. Humbly with your Lord, if you notice those three directives there, those aren't saying things like, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. It's saying, this is what's required of you, have to do justice, but to love mercy, and to walk humbly. He's he's telling you, this is what's required of you, to be righteous. It's not enough to be sinless, but you have to be righteous too. And so this is why I even like to say that Jesus didn't show up on Good Friday and say, okay, I'm the son of God, let's crucify me and and we'll, we'll get it over with that because he had to live the sum total of his life as a righteous man, as your substitute for righteousness. Does that make sense? You not only have to be sinless, but sinless and righteous, and Jesus did both. Jesus did both, okay? This is the the transaction that occurs uh, because of this. This is what substitutionary atonement is all about right here, this transaction. I receive his righteousness, and he receives my sin that's what he was doing in the Jordan River. He, he was there signing up to be, the, to be the one who would bear the load of my sin while he was fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law on my behalf so that his righteousness would be credited to me. So it's not that I'm just sinless, but I'm sinless and righteous, okay? And uh, this is a final, final thought here to put a period on this that Paul... Uh, Describes really perfectly for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and this is why I, I harp on this, and I, I would just, if I could just put this in everyone's head that shows up here on Sunday, every Sunday morning, especially when it comes time to the, uh, the point where we're confessing our sins. Okay? The, the wonderful thing about the fact that when we get up there and confess our sins, it's not like, we've said this before, it's not like we're telling God something he doesn't know. Okay? He knows everything. He knows every sin you've ever committed. Every single one of them. But the beautiful thing is, is that we can go into that moment of confession already having received the justification of God. In other words, you're already accepted. You're already justified. You will never be in a better, those who that believe in the saving work of Jesus, you, you will never have a better position before God than you have right. Now, right now. Confession is not a matter of, I've got to wash myself up so I can present myself to God. You already have that status. You've got it. You've got it. So in that moment when we're confessing our sins, what we're doing is saying, thank you for this, the this, this status that I have. And now, for as long as I live, between now and the time I, I, I go to glory, I, I want to die to sin. Here, here are the things that I, I still struggle with day to day. Even though you already have the status. Even though you already have that justified status. You're still dying to sin day after day. Dying unto sin, living under righteousness. And here are all the things that I did this week, Lord, that, uh, that, that I'm not dying to yet, but I'm trying. I'm trying, even though I already have the status. Your, your status is already secure. But I still, every day, want to die unto sin and live under righteousness in the footsteps of Jesus, our substitute, okay? Uh, that's really I probably to stop there, uh, 1048. <laughs> Any other thoughts, comments, or questions about any of that? Any of that at all? Who's got something for us? They'd like to share or comment on or ask a question about anything? I've been away from you for at least three or four weeks. You must have some questions stored up based on this lesson or something else, right? Anybody? Maybe I could count on you. I was kind of hoping too. I'm going to ask you to speak into this. (laughs) <laughs> just, just so that they can hear you as they record. We're recording all of this. Oh. So, I guess I was just going to like make sure it's clear in my head and I guess it's going to in all of ours that when we're saying that he embodied Israel mm-hmm. and so he stepped in to represent them and that's why he did that, like, sort of symbolized repentance and, the and all that stuff. We mean So when we talk about Israel, even in the Old Testament, when we're talking uh, everything that you read about Israel, Israel, and we even say, ah, oh, they're the chosen people of God, that, that is absolutely true. But again, even that trying to turn that off. Now. Even that, the people of Israel were analogous or they were symbolic of they were a pointer. They were a shadow of what was to come, which is the church. The church, you and I. The, the church where Jesus Christ reigns in, in people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That, even that, even Israel was symbolic of the ultimate church, okay? That's something really important to understand, because I, I wouldn't want you to walk away thinking that, uh, okay, Israel were the chosen people of God, uh, but then that didn't work out, and so Jesus had to come up with a plan B. Let's just open up the floodgates to everybody. No, the plan was, from the very beginning, even when he told Abraham, you're going to be a father of, of many nations, as, as, as profuse as the stars are in the sky, so shall your descendants be. Because, again, even, even Israel, even Israel is an analogy of the church that was, you know, the ultimate church that we would know in, in the, uh, when we are all there the, at the wedding feast of, of the Lamb. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. Someone else? I can't even tell if that's on now. Yes, sir, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Check, is that working? Yeah. I'm very intrigued at uh, the way that you mentioned that it's, it's not enough to be sinless, but you also have to be righteous as well. And as someone who grew up Southern Baptist, it was very about free will, and, and it, it seems like it's, it's kind of uh, ambiguous as to where works based salvation comes in. And, and I'm not saying that you're going there, but I would love at some point to do a, a lengthy deep dive into that dynamic. About, uh, about the fact that it's not enough to just be sinless, but you have to be righteous as well. Right. I, uh, I love the idea of how Jesus became the righteousness for us, but just how that intertwines with our interaction with the salvation and, <coughs> it, and, it, and all of that. The reason I stress it here uh, in this setting is because it, that, that dynamic that I was just speaking about with confession of sin. And that, that goes from not just confession of sin, but any time. Uh, I grew up in a uh, Southern Baptist church, too. Um, and, and again I am so grateful for my years as a uh, I was ordained as a Southern Baptist minister and my, my time in the church I am so grateful for uh, and every, every denomination has their uh, their uh, Achilles heel um, and, and at least in my church growing up it seemed like there was a, a, uh, a stress on, uh, on work still okay? that, uh, that, that somehow and, and again I could have just been misinterpreting this growing up uh, I'm sure that was the case. But I get the sense that I had to sort of stay on top of my sins. Okay? I'm, as soon as I confess my sins, uh, I'm good now. Now I'm good. Now I'm good. Uh, but the moment I start accumulating more, now i, I got to say, it help not helped me if I die before I've had a chance to clear this slate. Okay? Uh, and, and the reason I emphasize the fact of, of, of Jesus being sinless and righteous is because that's the status that he imputes to you. Meaning that you are, you'll, you'll never be better than you are right now. The good works that you're, you're trying to, to scrape together to please, he's already done it. He's already done it. So there's justification done. Sanctification is that ongoing process uh, where we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And so Martin Luther spoke of it as a, uh, uh, an already not yet tension. You know, so we already have uh, the full justification of God, we have it. You have the status. But we have this ongoing and because we have this indwelling and remaining sin that we're trying to push back and clear out uh, that we're called to do not to earn favor before God, uh, but because he's brought us into the process, brought us into the process to uh, uh, participate and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not because there's some deficiency on his part, but because, again, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And I will. I think we can do a deeper dive on that, too, and uh, maybe even talk about both of those, those sides of the justification and sanctification part and what part good works play in all of that. Uh, but great, great, uh, great comment and question. Someone else? Good stuff. All right. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and dismiss this in prayer. And, uh, and then uh, for those of got to get to the service, uh, you can. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we uh, thank, you for, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that oh, there's so much in there. Uh, we could spend uh, hours and hours upon uh, mining the, the depths of it and, and never reach the bottom. It seems like every time we go in, we, uh, we discover new things and, uh, and come out with more questions. So Father, we just ask for your, uh, your Holy Spirit to not only be with us during times like this, uh, when we, we study your word, but uh, when we leave. Uh, if we leave with questions, Father, direct us back to your word and, and direct us to the, the answers that you have for us there. Uh, Father, help us all the while longing for the day when uh, we get to be with you face to face and know what it is to, to be in the presence of, of, uh, of truth, of uh, truth incarnate, uh, and see the face of, of, of God in Christ. Uh, pray all these things uh, in your son's name. Amen. Y'all have a good afternoon.